If you have your Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a Bible, you should see some scattered out throughout the seating area. We'd love for you to, to just take one if you find it. Just take it home with you. That'll be our gift to you. And, and, and you'll find Hebrews in the second section, major section of the Bible, which is called the New Testament. And it's almost at the very end. So if you go to the end and start flipping back, chances are you'll come to it pretty, pretty quickly. We're in the book of Hebrews. What we've been saying so far, we're only, this is only our third week in this book, but it's a book all about the superiority of Jesus. And, and where we come to this morning in Hebrews chapter 1 is, is the author to Hebrews making the case for Jesus' superiority based on a comparison to the angels. His case is that Jesus is better for some reasons we're going to get into. Now, and maybe, maybe you're into angels. I don't know. I mean, I guess from certain things you can see in our culture, some people must be into it because the bookstores have tons of angel stuff. There's been TV shows and, and, and um, I don't know, you just see angels around, you know, if, if for no other reason than like Valentine's Day and Cupid and stuff like that. So, so maybe you are into angels and you need to hear this word. Maybe what you need to hear is the Hebrews author's case that, that angels matter. They do matter. They're real and they exist for the good of God's people to communicate messages to them. But in case you're spending too much time wondering about angels and you're too interested in them, well, all that you really need to know about them is that they spend all their time worshiping Jesus. So focus on him. Maybe that's a word you need to hear. Maybe though you're more like me. And I'm just full disclosure here. I have not been looking forward to coming to this passage in our study in Hebrews. I've been really looking forward to Hebrews, but not so much to this section on the angels because I'm not that interested in angels. I know that they're all over the Bible, Old and New Testament. I know that they're presented to us as beings that are good and for us and advocates. They're ultimately these messengers who bring words from God to humankind. And, and so I, I don't have any trouble. Once, you, once you're okay with supernatural beings... You know, it's not hard to believe that if God exists, angels also exist. I don't have any intellectual problem with them being there. I just don't, I'm not that into them. And, and it, doesn't, it, it doesn't take much for me to be convinced that Jesus is better than the angels. That's never really a problem that I've had. And so knowing that this, this case was coming for us in Hebrews chapter 1, I've kind of been dreading where we were going to go with it. Full disclosure. This is about the worst way you could possibly start a sermon, right? There's <laughs> all the reasons that this text is not going to interest you. But I've, I have changed my mind this week. You, you knew that that was coming, right? A couple of considerations about angels have helped me sort of shift, or about angels and about this text in particular, have helped me get more interested and more excited about where we're headed this morning. One was I was listening to a sermon by this uh, New Testament professor that I really like, a guy named D.A. Carson. He was, uh, he was giving a talk somewhere about this passage, and he made an observation that, that I thought I needed to hear, and maybe you do too, in case you're already checking out because you know where, where we're headed. He said that actually, even though in the West many of us don't think about angels very much because we just don't think about the supernatural world that much, at other times in history and in other places in the world right now, all this talk of angels is actually what gives the Christian story some credibility. That's what people really are interested in. And they, they assume, they just assume that the world is full of these kinds of beings. And so the fact that the Christian story takes them seriously gives them credibility. He mentioned the Muslim world as a particular example of this. Right? In the Muslim world, they connect with the idea of angels and of, and of a heavenly host sort of as f- fully participating in, in what God is doing in the world. So I needed to hear that. 
You know, and maybe, maybe at other places and other times, maybe because angels are big there, maybe, maybe that's coming for us. Who knows what the next 20 years holds? At the very least, we shouldn't so privilege where we are, our time and place, that we, we can't appreciate why this passage would matter to others. So that, that's a word to me. I don't know if you need to hear that. Second thing is this, and this one is, is even more important for me. What became clear as I moved through the text to, to prepare for today is that the passage itself isn't really about angels anyway. Angels apparently were of some sort of fascination for the people who he was writing to, and they were in danger of privileging angels over Jesus, maybe thinking that Jesus was not as important as the messages that could be, that could be brought by an angel because Jesus looked like a man just like us, you know, and, and angels seem cooler. They seem just to have more of a, I don't know, more of an exotic feel to them. That, that's probably what they needed to hear. But where the author goes is less about the angels than about Jesus. His case for why they shouldn't care as much about angels and should care more about Jesus is all about the things that are true of Jesus that make him amazing, make him uh, something that you can't afford to substitute anything else with. So, so the passage refers to angels but only talks about Jesus, and it's all about Jesus' reign. So, so if we get into the passage and it's its own presentation to us, what we're going to talk about today is much less about how Christ relates to the angels than who Jesus is and what makes him so remarkable. I mean, ultimately, we've said this before, Hebrews, the the main reason we study it, the main reason it's still valuable to us is that it is one of the most comprehensive cases for why Jesus should be central to everything that we do. If you, so if, if you're here and you're, and you're not that familiar with Christianity and you want to know what it is about Jesus that sets him apart, why Christians have insisted that this person is everything, then today you're going to get some help. Because that's the case that's made here in chapter 1. And that where he goes, and this gets us directly into where we're headed for today, where he goes when he wants to suggest why Jesus is superior to angels has everything to do with Jesus' status as king. Jesus' status as king. I want to point you to a couple of uh, markers in the passage before we read it together, so you'll see how we know that that's the subject. You know, you know when these things were originally written, they didn't have chapter titles. They didn't have verse breakdowns. They didn't have chapter titles. The, the way that you would know when you've moved from one subject to another is the author would insert uh, little sentences, sort of topic sentences, and bracket his subject. So we begin and end in, some, in the same way. And that's what we get for our passage today. So if you look at, at verse 3 and 4 of chapter 1, which we considered more last week, we, we end in that passage with this image of Jesus sitting down, being enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And, that he, and, and the mention in verse 4 that he's now inherited a name that is way better than that of the angels. A name, an identity, a status that's superior to the angels. It's about his enthronement. Then if you skip to the end of this passage, in verse 13, you get the same image that comes out again. There it's a quote from one of the Psalms. And he says, To which of the angels... Has he, referring to God, ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? See, that? See how he's doing it? It's bracketing it. He's telling you what his subject is. It's about Jesus as the king. And if Jesus is the king, he's superior to the angels for these reasons. That's where we're headed this morning. So what we're going to do today is try to get into different layers of Jesus' status as king and consider how those things were meant to encourage these believers that this letter was originally meant for and how they can also encourage us. What does it mean that Jesus reigns and how does that affect how we worship him and live our lives today? That's the idea. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to read this passage together. And as we do, I want you to pay attention to what this author does. 
It's a classic example of how they would make a case. He strings together a whole bunch of Old Testament citations. It doesn't do a whole lot of interpreting of them. He just strings them together. They're meant as blow after blow after blow so that at the end of it, you're convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. So now to the text. This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 1. And we'll begin in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you'll roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is God's word. You can be seated. So as I mentioned, it's a passage about the reign of Jesus, about his enthronement and what makes him such a magnificent and irreplaceable king. This morning, I want to break that down into two sections. Jesus reigns as perfect son, and Jesus reigns forever. We're going to get there by grouping some of the Old Testament passages that this author cites. And we mentioned this a couple weeks ago in giving a sort of overview of the whole book. We mentioned that one of his favorite things to do is to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of things that the Old Testament talks about. And this is our first example of him doing that, just giving us one after another quotation from the Old Testament and suggesting that they, that they find their ultimate fulfillment, that they're, they're really about Jesus. It's this first cluster of, of texts about Christ that he applies to Christ that gets directly at what it means for Jesus to reign as the Son of God. I'm going to start there because I don't know if, if you notice this, but it seems like these passages introduce some strange ideas about who Jesus actually is. I don't know if you noticed, maybe not. Verse 5 seems to indicate that Jesus becomes the Son of God rather than always being the Son of God. And doesn't the church teach that Jesus is, is eternal, that he's part of the Trinity which has always existed, and that, 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 um, that as, as Son he certainly took on flesh at a point in time, but he, he never didn't exist in relationship to God the Father. So, so what does he mean here? I mean, the, the, the second quotation in verse 5 seems to say the same thing. I'm going to be to him a father. Future tense, right? I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. What, what, what is this trying to get at? 
We talked about Hebrews as, as about sonship of Jesus, of the, really into the fact that Jesus is his son. But does Jesus become the son of God? And if so, how? It seems to fit better with some of the early heresies in the church or with today's Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know if you guys have ever had a Jehovah's Witness practitioner show up on your doorstep and, and, and point you to passages like this one that seem to say Jesus isn't eternal. He isn't himself God. He, he, he is adopted by God as a son to fulfill this particular role, but he himself is just one of the created beings. Is this passage meant to support that? And if not, why? That's what I want to explain this morning. We need to look carefully first at each of these quotes. We need to go to where they come from and understand what they meant to the people that originally received them so we can know what this author to Hebrews was doing with them, how he was putting them to use here. And what we're going to see, just as, a, as a, we're going to step back and look at this in more detail in a minute after we looked at each quote, but where we're headed is he's referring to Jesus as fulfilling the office of Son of God, not so much talking about him being in status in his being Son of God. He's always that, but now he takes on this office of Son of God. We're going to get into what this is, but first to the text. So Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is the quote from, from the beginning of verse 5. You are my son, today I have begotten you. We just uh, spent an hour on this psalm in our adult Bible study, so let me put in a plug for that. We're, talking, we're going through the, uh, the psalms at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. meet right over here in the library. We're having a great time, and this morning was, was about Psalm 2. That's where the, it's, it's one of Israel's most beloved psalms, put at the very beginning of their collection because it speaks to universal themes it gets at the heart of what that whole community was looking for. And it's a psalm about a king anointed by God who would overthrow all of the enemies of God. The psalm begins with the nations who are raging against God and his purposes, who hate God's people and want to see God's purposes overthrown. They're raging against him. They're coming at him. And then, then the psalm goes to the appointment of this king. You are my son, he is told. Today I have begotten you. And, and looks forward to the day when this king, this one who has appointed God's son, would overthrow all of the enemies that threaten God's people. That's Psalm 2. Jesus is claiming, what, what the author of Hebrews is claiming about Jesus is that he is the one they've been waiting for. The son who would overthrow God's enemies. The next quotation makes a similar point. This one's actually from 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's the section of the Bible where we get the famous covenant with David. So David is this prototypical, or he is this, this perfect king, this idealized king, the one that Israel was always looking for. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we get God interacting with him, promising that he is going to build a house for David. David had wanted to build a temple for God, right, to show his uh, allegiance to him, how much he valued him. And God says, who are you to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. And what he meant by that is that he was going to put a ruler on the throne of David forever. Somebody was going to come from his line that was going to establish a kingdom and a perfect peace for God's people. That's how God was going to save the world. So in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, God says to him, I will be a father to this one who will come from your line, and he will be to me a son. What the passage is looking ahead to is a reign of perfect peace where all the threats to God's people have gone away forever. Now, what, what's going on here? What does it mean that Jesus is to have fulfilled these passages, and, and how is it true that he becomes God's son? What I, what I hope is clear from these passages is that the son of God in the, in the Old Testament was actually thought of more as a title that someone 
received than it was a status that they always had, right? One, one guy that I listened to, uh, uh, Anglican from Australia, um, Philip Jensen, he described it this way. There's a difference between God the Son and Son of God in the way that the Bible talks about the significance of Jesus. So Jesus is always God the Son. He is an eternal member of this trinity. God is his Father, and he is always mysteriously somehow in the, in the mysterious trinity. He, he has his status as Son. That's forever. It never changes. But then he has to become the Son of God in the same way that all of Israel's kings were referred to as sons of God. In the same way that, that their neighbors, these other nations that surrounded Israel, when, when their kings, like a, a, say a, a new pharaoh was crowned, he was said to be, at his crowning, now the son of God. It's, part of the, it's like an invocation. It's part of the ceremony of enthroning them. It was true for Israel and for, and for their neighbors. It was a title that you received. One of the ways that I heard that was help, I think, I think helpful to understand how this works is to think back to what sonship really meant in this time. Right? It wasn't just who your father was, it was who, that, 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 that you were a son of your father in this time meant that you followed in his footsteps, right? That he had some sort of trade, some sort of craft. You didn't just go off to college and figure out what you wanted to major in and then go do your own thing. In this time, you stayed in your home, you learned your craft from your father, and you took over his business. So to be his son was not just to have come from him physically, but was to, it was to be like him, Right? to represent him, to carry on his work for him in, in the world. So when, this, when a king is appointed son of the God, they are to be like the God that they rule for, to rule on their behalf and to reflect their priorities and their values. That was, that was what was caught up in this title. So what we're, what we're saying here then is that Jesus, by his death and by his triumph over the grave and his resurrection, he attains the status of Son of God. He was always God the Son, but he's now become the Son of God. The last piece I think that, that helps us confirm that's what's going on here is in verses 8 and 9. The next quote about Jesus, this one's from a different psalm, from Psalm 45. Read what it says. Verses 8 and 9. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then here's, here's the significance. Here's what he's celebrating. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. See what's happened here? He, he this, this king that's looked forward to in Psalm 45, has inherited or received an appointment, an anointing, on the basis of his perfect righteousness. And we don't have to look far into Israel's history to know that that could not be said of any of their kings. David famously failed time and again. He was guilty of murder and adultery. His son Solomon was guilty of idolatry, of worshiping many, many gods in addition to the one true God of Israel. And then the rest of the story only gets worse from there. Israel's kings had led them into captivity because of their unrighteousness, not their righteousness. So this son of God, to, to be the true son of God, was going to require a perfect righteousness that none of the other kings who had had the provisional title of son of God before, that none of them had ever attained. So by citing these texts and then going to this text celebrating the righteousness of the king, what, he, what the author is doing is trying to present to us Jesus who has attained a status 
as perfect Son of God. He is the one who we have been waiting for to represent us perfectly before the throne of God, to be for us what we as a people could not be. That's, that's what he's invoking. Far from being himself just a man or just an angel, it's no wonder that we're told in verse 6 that the angels are worshiping this son. He is everything that humanity in general was meant to be and everything that, he, that Israel's representatives, Adam and David, had failed to be. Acting for us, he was perfect in his love for righteousness and perfect in his hatred of wickedness. And acting for us, he took on the powers of evil that raged against God and he overthrew them once and for all by triumphing over the grave. That's the point. And now, sitting at the right hand of God, he has become son of God. Now, admittedly, this is, this is heady stuff. All these distinctions between the being of, of Christ and the, the status or the title of Christ and his function, how all of this relates to promises in the Old Testament and their fulfillment in Jesus. But I don't want you to get distracted from the deep, penetrating relevance that this has. Ultimately, this is to look ahead a little bit to where Hebrews is going. But ultimately... The reason this is so valuable for us is that we're told everything that's true of Jesus is also true of us. Ultimately, what Hebrews is, where Hebrews is going in the next couple chapters is to describe what theologians call the union with Christ, our union with Christ, so that through faith in him, he transfers what he has done and who he is to us so that everything that's true of him becomes true of us also. So to celebrate the righteousness of the king as those who are united to that king is to celebrate our righteousness because it's perfect in him. To celebrate the victory of the king who has become the son of God because he has overthrown all of those that raged against him is to celebrate our victory with him and the triumph over the grave that waits for us if we, if we have faith in him. That's who we are now. This passage explains who we are in Christ so how do you identify yourself? We've all got lists, right, in our mind, like things that we go to if we, that, 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 that are the, the, the qualities that we feel like define us. You know, I, don't know, I don't know where yours are. Maybe you feel like you're smart or that you're dumb, you're attractive or you're ugly. Maybe you're athletic or you're not athletic, healthy or not healthy, well-liked or a loner. You, do you see yourself as a success or disappointment? I don't know. You've got your list. And if you're an optimist, chances are that your list helps you accept the things that you're not, right? So uh, I may not have athletic ability, but I'm, I'm really good at studying and reading. Or I may, not have, I may not have much hair, but I've got great taste in neckties, right? <laughs> I may not have the body of a supermodel, but I'm really good in the kitchen. Think Paula Dean, right? Or if you're a pessimist, then you use the things that you're not to take away the joy of the, from the things that you are, right? So I may be really good in the kitchen, but I don't have the body of a supermodel. I don't know how you use your list, what your list includes, but here's the point. Where you should go is to Jesus and to your identification with him. When asked who you are, asked to describe yourself, how quickly does your mind go to what Jesus has accomplished and the fact that you in him have the same track record? That's the beautiful news of the gospel, is that when we rest on Christ, everything that's true of him becomes true of us, and true on a much deeper level than anything that's on your list. And the point of Hebrews, the point, the point of the whole book, and the reason it's so valuable to us, is that it celebrates Jesus as our goal, 
as our true identity, not as a means to some other end, but as the end in itself, as the, the object of our race and the prize that we're to lay hold to, as the one whom we're to meant to enjoy and to savor as the only lasting joy in the world. He's the prize, and to have him, to have latched hold on him, is to be like him, because everything that's true of him is true of us too. That's the significance of Jesus' reign as the perfect son. And that's what makes the next aspect of his reign so sweet. Because not only has he accomplished everything that's meant to be accomplished, and that before God he reigns uh, in security, having wiped clean all enemies and having brought us into his perfect righteousness before God. Not only is that true, but he reigns forever. In other words, not only is his reign beautiful, it won't end. To have him is to be like him. To be joined to him is to have everything that's true of him, true of you. And his reign is forever. So those who are in him, those who are part of his reign, last forever too. That's where, that's where the next quote goes. The next quote is from Psalm 102. It, it, it's in verses uh, 10 through 12 in Hebrews chapter 1. And if there's any doubts left over in your mind about whether or not the author of Hebrews thought that Jesus was God, any more confusion over the fact that he seems to become Son of God, and maybe what was he before? Was he just a human before? Any, any doubts that you might have there should be, should be permanently banned from your mind after you read from verse 10, because he is quoting, the author of Hebrews is quoting a psalm that's written about God, Yahweh, the creator of everything that is, celebrating him as the creator of everything that is. Clearly, this author thought that Jesus was the one who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. Read the verses again with me, verses 10 10 through 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you're the same. And your years will have no end. So what the author celebrates is clear enough. Whereas the angels are created, or they haven't existed forever, whereas all of the other things in creation that we look at are passing away, as beautiful they are, they're not going to last. Jesus is the one being of whom that is not true in and of himself point of the imagery is unmistakable. He existed before time. He laid, the, in, in the way that, that this ancient audience understood how the world w- uh, looked, the, sh- the shape of it, he laid the foundation of the earth, and he made the heavens. The heavens are the work of his hands, so as low as you can go and as high as you can go, it's all, it's all there because Jesus is the one who put it there. And then the point comes clear in verses 11 and 12. That's where they hammer it home. These things, all the things that you've seen that he's made, as beautiful as they are, they pass away. But Jesus remains because he's superior and his reign won't end. The psalmist here, the psalmist that's being quoted from Psalm 102 is simply making an observation, something that I think we've all seen in our experience, if we're honest. This material world we live in and everything that's in it just doesn't last, right? Seasons come and seasons go. Plants sprout up. They grow strong. In some cases, they live to be even hundreds of years in the cases of some amazing trees, but ultimately they're decaying and they die. Even stars burn out at some point. And we know it of ourselves all too well, right? Our bodies grow old, they begin to decay, and we die. That's why the analogy to garments works so well. He talks about these things that Jesus has made as a garment that eventually wears out. I got a vivid reminder of that 
last week because, or maybe it was earlier this week, I can't remember exactly, but my favorite pair of blue jeans got a rip across the, the knee. I know some of you aren't going to sympathize with that because you buy your jeans tattered. I can't pull that off. So I, I just try to find the most traditional jeans that I can, and it's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard search because they don't exist very much anymore. But I had found some years ago, several years ago, and I, I pretty much just wear those. Those are basically the only jeans I would wear. I wear them not all the time, not every day. We wash them. But I would wear, that was basically the only ones that I would wear. And I could tell that they were getting worn out because they were starting to get really soft. And I could start to see the little white threads running, you know, horizontally across the leg. And I knew that time was coming. I was bending down to play with Walter and just the knee just popped open. So I've been wearing them the past couple of days, but I'm not pulling it off. Lindsay got onto me yesterday for it. This big, big tear right across the knee. It just reminded me, though, as I was reading this passage, about how even, even our favorite garments, the ones that we take care of, they just wear out over time. It's just, it's just, it just is. So, so with the material world, from inception, it's subject to an unstoppable process of decay, but that's not true with Jesus. Jesus stays the same. His years have no end. Now, don't mistake the point of this comparison between Jesus and everything else in the world. Some people will point to the passage like this to prove that Christians just don't care about the material world, right? Jesus is just going to roll it up like a garment and toss it away anyway, so we may as well let it go to hell in a handbasket. That's not the point of this text at all. Remember, it starts with the fact that Jesus made this world with his own hands. So the very fact that he created it shows that he, he wanted it to exist. He felt, he felt that it was good. Remember the declaration of God the Father as he completed his work of creation that each of these things is good, and we know that they're good. Because they, they declare his glory as his handiwork. It's not that there's anything wrong inherently with what this material world is and that it should just be discarded. But it's just, it's just limited. It just does decay. What this passage, all this passage is really trying to say is what even the most, the most uh, staunch environmental protectionists would have to admit. That is that this material world passes away. It's just a simple observation that the world isn't forever. It's like purchasing a car, right? That car is going to be a depreciating investment. You purchase a car, you know when you drive it off the lot, it's just lost a significant amount of its value, and it's going to continue, unless you can save it for like 50 years, it's going to continue to lose value as long as you have it. Now, that doesn't mean you don't, that you don't be a good steward of the car that you own, right? You wash it, you change the oil every three to 5,000 miles in theory. You take it for a tune-up whenever that is supposed to be. You take care of the car, and maybe if you're lucky, you, you care for it well enough that you get to hand it on to your children at one day, and it gets to be their first car. But ultimately, no matter how well you care for it, no matter how faithful you are in that good and right stewardship to your, your car, it's a depreciating investment. It is going to lose value, and eventually it's not going to work anymore. It's a car, and it's limited by its nature. The same thing goes for the material world. It's wonderful. It has real beauty to it. It's worth protecting and cultivating as something that God himself has made. But investments that you make here in this world are going to wear out, just like a garment. As an end in itself, this material world is a dead end. But what this passage points us to is that the reign of the perfect sun is a reign that will never end, and that those who are attached to him they will see no end as well. Ultimately, all the good and the beauty that's in this world, that's, that's lovingly placed here on purpose by the one who made it, 
ultimately it's just it's here to point us to something that's even more to give us a reflection of something more deeply satisfying that really and truly does exist but belongs to another world one of my favorite authors for helping me to see how this works for pointing me towards towards a way to appreciate the material world and its beauty without without idolizing it as c.s lewis i'm sure many of you have also been helped by him there's this one address that is maybe my favorite piece in lewis called the weight of glory and most of that address is, is on this subject, on how, how to see the world for the beauty that's in it, but, but not to idolize it, to look ahead to what it's pointing us to, a glory that's to come that's much more beautiful. Now, nobody loved life or loved, loved humanity, this, this world more than, than Lewis. But he was also keenly aware of the fact that we're always left wanting more, that, it's al- that we're always homesick for some world that we just can't quite break into. In the weight of glory, he warns us against settling on the things that we enjoy in this world as if we're made for this world and not another one. Let me just quote to you one of, the, one of my favorite lines from that address. These things, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is that you enjoy about this world, these things are good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. What's Lewis getting at? And he's getting at at an experience that all of us have had, an experience that, that this world is full of good things, full of beauty. Think of the magnificent views that you've seen, you know, from, from some natural landscape. Think of the joy that is in the love of another person. Think of, think of the, the joy of parenthood or, or of what it's like to be the child of good parents. Or, or you fill in the blank. Even something as simple as the joy we get from reading a good book or from, from seeing a good movie or, or hearing beautiful music. Ultimately, we know that that's something that's real. There's something there. It can't just be empty. It can't just be chemical reactions in our brain. It has meaning. But we also know that those things just don't satisfy, that, the, that we're, like, we're like hamsters in a wheel, it seems like, always chasing after something that's just outside of our grasp so that, so that, uh, so that even to enjoy it, is, the, the movies come to an end. The music gets old after a while. The, the views, even if, no matter how beautiful they are, if you look at them for three days straight, you get, they, they lose their effect on you. How do you explain this tension between knowing there's something there in this material world that's good, but knowing that it's not ultimate and it, it doesn't fully, finally satisfy us? Lewis is helping us, and the author to Hebrews is pointing us. Ultimately, this world is good because of the one who made it, but it is not here in and of itself. It will be rolled up like a garment and tossed aside. And what it's meant for is to point us to the reign that will never end, to point us to the fulfillment of the desires that leave us wanting here in this life, to point us to the one in whom all of those desires will finally be fulfilled. If Hebrews is about anything, it's about pointing us to satisfaction in Jesus, to letting him, this person, our connection to him, be our be-all and end-all. And the reason Jesus is so trustworthy, what makes him superior to the angels and to anything else we might fill in this blank in, is that Jesus' reign will not end. All we see around us is a conduit for something more. 
It's a glimpse and a taste of a beauty that is absolute and incorruptible. It's meant to point us to the one who's the same and who will never die. To remind us that we're made for another world and attached to this king, we will have it. So the call of our passage this morning is not to settle on worshiping angels or the material world or whatever else you might want to fill in the blank, but to join with the angels in worshiping the Son who reigns now and forever. Lord, help us to help us to avoid the trap that exists for us at every turn. The trap of settling for some substitute that promises us fulfillment but can't deliver. We know it too well because we've fallen into it. Oh, Lord, would you give us a view of Jesus? Would you please help us to see him and to savor him for who he is so that we so that we know what counterfeit looks like and we are protected from our tendencies to accept it. Would you satisfy us in Christ this morning, now, and this week, and this year, and forever, so that in him we can enjoy the reign that he has won by his perfect life, his all-sufficient death, and his climactic once-and-for-all resurrection from the grave. We want to be joined to him. Would you make it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.